Well, I have um, quite a hefty handout, if I can get somebody to help me uh, pass it out. It's the, the lyrics to uh, the Messiah. You maybe use it as note paper for the next few weeks. You can, I might have enough for everybody to take one. If not, I can print out more for next time. Um, there's quite a few pieces, and I'm really not sure how far we're going to get in the next four weeks, considering the next week we don't have a Sunday school because of our congregational meeting. Um, but we'll, we'll bust through as much of, the, of part one, at least, before Christmas, and then maybe we'll pick up with the rest after Christmas. And we'll go through the structure of the Messiah uh, in a little bit. But while these are being handed out, let me just give a little background to Handel's life and some of this music as well. And I want to say from the outset that most of this, much of this information comes from a Smithsonian Magazine piece from December 2009, The Glorious History of Handel's Messiah. It's a wonderful, brief article. It gives a lot of history of the piece and about Handel's life. And I don't, I'm no expert in it, so I needed to really rely heavily, heavily on that piece of, uh, of work. So Handel was born, guess what year? Does anybody know about when Handel was born? Anybody, just throw out a number. Well, 1500s, okay, that's a little bit early. 1718, he was alive during 1718. He was born in 1685. And guess where? Germany. Yeah, Germany. Um, maybe recognized from his name, George Frederick Handel. Uh, he was born in Halal, Germany, in uh, February 23 of 1685. His father was a surgeon, so he kind of grew up in a, in a privileged position in, his, in the society at that time. His father was a surgeon, and as we've heard so much throughout even church history, when you have somebody, a son you want to raise up, what do you want him to be? A surgeon, a doctor, or a lawyer? Um, we've heard that, I think, from Martin Luther's family as well, wanted him to be a lawyer. So his dad wanted young George, his son, to be a lawyer. But one of their, their friends... Uh, his name was the Duke of Wessenfels. He heard young George Frederick play the organ at age 11. He heard him and realized he needs to get into music. He's a gifted prodigy. It's, it's steer him towards music. And won over his father, and his father agreed. And so George began to go into music. Um, in 1705, when he was 18 years old, he composed his first opera. What did you do at age 18? I didn't write an opera. I'm sure none of you guys did either. Uh, but that's what he did. He wrote an opera when he was 18. And for the next five years, he was employed as a musician, a composer, and a conductor in courts and churches in Rome, Florence, Naples, and Venice. So I'll kind of travel all over Italy uh, for the first five years when he was a musician. And, then he finally, and also in Hanover, Germany. So a very gifted musician, well sought after, and he was able to find a lot of little different posts throughout the years. But as you can tell by how far he moved or fast he moved around Italy, he didn't like to be tied down in one place. In, in the 1600s, in that time, to be a musician usually meant you needed to have a benefactor, somebody who was going to be your patron to give you a living, um, to pay for your existence, to give you food, maybe even shelter, in usually like a court. Uh, one of the contemporaries of, of Handel was Bach. They actually were born in the same year. Bach didn't mind having a benefactor working with the, in the church and in courts. Handel didn't like that. He liked to move around a little bit. He didn't like to be tied down. 
Uh, he did write court music when he was asked. Uh, water music is one of those things that he, he uh, composed when he was asked by uh, the King of England. But he liked to be a little more independent. And in those days, to be independent, you really didn't need to stay to the continent of, of Germany. They were kind of rooted in the old form of way to do things. You need a benefactor and a patron. So he needed to move. He moved to London. In 1710, uh, he moved there. Because it was easier to be a, a musical entrepreneur, able to be independent, to do things on his own in London. London had really grown to be a big, a big city, a very prosperous city through the trade that they had all over the world. They, were, they had a merchant and a professional class that really wanted to raise themselves up to be cultural elite. Before that, it was really the nobility. They were the ones that cared about the music. They were the ones that paid for the music. But this, this rising merchant class and professional class, they were throwing their money into the arts. And so um, Handel came to London so that he could partake of that, to, be, to get his well-being paid for while not being tied down by one benefactor. Anybody have any idea what his... his um, style of music was, or what he was writing when he was in London. What was Handel famous for before he started going to his oratorios? Any ideas? He wrote 42 of them. He started when he was 18. No, operas. He started when he was 18, he wrote 42 operas. But they were all Italian operas. And that was the big deal in that day, to have an Italian opera. So when he was in London, they were you know, importing Italian singers and composers, uh, people who knew Italian opera. It was big. That's what the, the crowd wanted, and Handel toured Italy for a while. He knew Italian operas. He wrote a lot of them. But in 1730s, things started to change. As is, you know, even happens in our day, you know, things kind of come and go. There's a, there's a big rush to have the next best thing. That kind of dies down as the newer things come about. And that's what happened with the Italian operas. Um, they would be very expensive to produce, they took a huge emotional toll on the composers to write them, to think about the sets, to think about all that needs to go on. And that moved Handel to move into writing sacred oratorios. Oratorios. Essentially, it's a sacred opera. But it doesn't have the sets. It doesn't have the costumes. It's essentially just the singers. There could be characters and there's other... Um, you know, things going similar to an opera without those big fancy production. Um, it's an opera usually on a religious subject. So he started going into these oratorios. That's what the people wanted to hear, and they were, they were clamoring to have more and more of them. And the thing also about these oratorios is that they were in English. They were kind of over the Italian stuff. All the Italian operas were in Italian. But oratorios they were able to write in English. Uh, they were usually composed of an orchestra, a chorus, and some soloists. So a, lot, a little bit easier of our production without all those sets and out all those uh, scene changes and, and costumes and things. Um, so this gave Handel a lot of freedom. He wasn't tied down to just having uh, that opera form. He did end up writing, again, as I said, 42 operas, but he wrote 29 oratorios. So it was a big part of his repertoire as well, as long as many other uh, pieces of music. That's a little bit about how he got to the oratorio and how he got to London, where he ended up living the rest of his life uh, after 1710. He ended up dying in London. We don't really know a lot about his personal life. 
Maybe there was a, there was a few letters that he wrote to people, but he didn't write a lot. Um, he never married. Um, so we, didn't know, we don't know a lot about his personal life. But he was known to have a little bit of a temper. And he even uh, fought in a duel with swords. It was actually one of his friends. They had a duel. He was only spared by his opponent's sword when his opponent thrust and hit a, a metal button on his jacket. Spared his life. And guess what the argument was about? Pardon? Oratory? No. Well, about the arrangement in the orchestra pit. They had they come to blows over how to arrange the orchestra in the orchestra pit. They took it really seriously, as you could tell. Uh, he almost died over this argument. But his, uh, this friend was uh, Johann Matheson. He was a fellow composer and musician. They ended up being remaining good friends. Uh, after this for a number of years. Despite his temper, though, Handel was a very generous man. He gave a lot of his fortune to those who needed it. He didn't have a family, so he didn't have to you know, support anybody but himself. Uh, he made his fortune through music, but he also was a savvy investor. As I mentioned, there was this, this rising merchant and professional class in London. And he invested in the stock market very well, and he actually did very well for himself. And he donated large amounts of his money to orphans, retired musicians, and the ill. And even a portion of the debut from the Messiah was donated to a debtor's prison and a hospital in Dublin. It's a very generous man. And that's something maybe we just need to step back and think about, how he, he wrote sacred music, but he also put that into practice in a way, by giving away a lot of his fortune. When he died, uh, his estate was valued at 20,000 pounds, which makes him a multimillionaire today pretty much gave it all away. He had it in his will to give it to charities, friends, his servants, and also his, uh, his family. And the only thing he kind of did for himself, you know, posthumously, is put 600 pounds aside to have um, his monument in Westminster Abbey, where he was buried. So a very generous man, very humble man in that regard, and gave away a lot of his money. So any questions, I'm not going to be able to answer probably everything from Handel's life. So that's kind of just a picture uh, of his life. He ended up dying um, in 1759 in London. So he was 74 years old uh, when he died. Yes, Angela. I think they're kind of like employees waiting for a piece of music to be asked for. And they would do that. And they would also you know, probably conduct and, and lead the chamber orchestra for the, in that court. Uh, there's one quote that Handel said from his, one of his biographers. Let's see if I can find it here a second. It kind of speaks to how this works. But Handel didn't hang around palace antechambers waiting for his lordship or his royal highness, uh, one of the, the biographers said. You know, so that's maybe kind of how they sat around waiting for somebody to say, I need some music for a party I'm going to have in a couple weeks. He didn't want to do that. He wanted to see something and write it for himself. Yeah, David. He was a member of a church. Um, he, was, he was buried in Westminster Abbey. I don't know if that's where he necessarily attended. But I, don't, I didn't run across, I mean, this was from the Smithsonian Magazine, so they didn't go into a lot of his religious uh, life. Um, maybe I can look up to that for a couple weeks. But yeah, given the, given the, the um, he wrote sacred oratorios, which were usually 
biblical themes, biblical stories. He had to have some knowledge of that. But I know he went to church. Any other questions? Yes, ready. No. I don't know. I don't. I mean, he didn't have a family. Um, I don't know who. I think they're probably now in the public domain. But don't quote me on that if you get busted for <laughs> illegally doing something with his music. But let's talk now about the Messiah itself. As you know, as I mentioned, probably most of us have heard the Messiah in some form or the other over the years. Uh, the text, or it's really a collection of texts that were, that were given to handle by Charles Jennings, Jennings in July of, 19, of 1741. So Jennings, Jennings had this, this music, or this, these words that he had compiled, and he gave them to handle. And said, so I want you to write music uh, for these words. Um, and he had, um, Jennings noted when he gave it to him, I hope Handel will lay out his whole genius and skill upon it, that the composition may excel all his former compositions, as the subject excels every other subject. So when this, these, these lyrics were given to Handel, the, the Jennings wanted, it's such a great text. This story excels all other texts that you can give. It's the Bible, right? I hope he produces music that will do it justice. And as we are now 272 years later, I think we can say that he did do justice uh, to these, this text. And his music has really stood the test of time in that regard. So Handel was given this music, in July, uh, this lyrics in July 1741. And he wrote the music in three or four weeks, in August and September of the same year. So a very, again, he's a prodigy. He was a very gifted musician. And somebody, one of his biographers noted he just worked day and night. It wasn't like he just did a couple hours a day. He worked tirelessly to write this music. But again, he finished it in just a few weeks, which is an amazing uh, gift that he had. So this was given to him in July. And what, what corresponding holiday do you think this was for? Give, pardon? Christmas. No. Easter. The Messiah was an Easter oratorio. Um, in the years since, we have kind of turned it into a Christmas piece of music, mainly because of the first part. The first part of the music speaks just of Christ, the prophecy leading up to Christ, and then Christ's birth. So that's kind of been how it's ingrained into our culture, especially uh, the Christmas aspect of it. But the very last part is about his resurrection. And that's what this whole music is leading towards, is the resurrection, which would lend to Easter. But yet it's a great piece of music any time of year. Christmas, again, it's endeared itself into our hearts as well, uh, over to the Christmas holiday especially. So the first performance was in Dublin on April 13, 1742, and it was easily a sellout. Uh, the, the managers of the, the music hall in Dublin was trying to get the ladies to shy away from wearing hoops so they could cram more people into the music hall because it was an easily a sellout. We need more space, don't wear hoops. I don't know if they actually heeded that advice or not, but it was easily a sellout. But why Dublin, not London? It's an interesting question maybe you thought of if he was you know, really big into London and the music scene there. Why would he do such a big piece of music in Dublin? Well, it was a very fast-growing and very prosperous city at the time, and there was a wealthy elite that was growing there, and they wanted a piece of that cultural pie. They wanted to say, Look how good of a city we are. We can host an event such as this, a large cultural event. 
And Handel, in the last season that he had in London, he didn't like the way he was received by a number of his, of his pieces and by some of the critics. They weren't the best. They didn't really like his music the last season. So he wanted to do, do something away from London, see how it kind of play things out a little bit. He didn't want to have another, a big flop on his hands. So let's go to Dublin. But also the music was a little unorthodox. The oratorios usually were still a great story. They had characters and a plot and uh, very dramatic, you know, singing back and forth between these characters. The Messiah doesn't have any of that. It doesn't have strong characters that are going back and forth. Um, it's really an anonymous narration, just quoting a scripture text. So he felt it was a little unorthodox, and he wanted to, again, test the waters someplace else, someplace other than London. And even today in the United States, we see that sometimes when they have a piece that they're not quite sure if it's ready for Broadway, they maybe will do it off-Broadway or do it in some other town where they can kind of test the waters a little bit. If it goes well, then they probably get some good financial backing to bring it to Broadway or something like that. So this has been going on for a long time. So that's why he brought it to, uh, to, to Dublin. Uh, again, the Messiah had this little unorthodox style, but we know the plot of the story. It wasn't um, you know, a plot with characters except God is one character making his prophecy to Jesus Christ. That is probably one of the best stories ever, as Dorothy Sayers says, the greatest story ever told. And that's the, the, what he's using uh, as his, his text, these scripture texts. So again, a little unorthodox for, for Handel. And oratorios, as I mentioned, they kind of act like operas, minus the sets and the costumes. And they still have these characters involved in the story. Again, this doesn't have it. It's got soloists that are singing, but they're anonymous. They don't have names. You can't identify, that's Frank, that's George. It's speaking these texts, these narrations. And we have even uh, choruses. And there's only, maybe the chorus at a couple points can be thought of as angels, singing angels, uh, singing praises from heaven. Other than that, everything is anonymous, waiting for the life of Christ to come and then his death and his resurrection. That's what the story is about. Any questions on this, the broad overview of the Messiah? All right. So there's three parts. If you've kind of paged through your, the lyrics, you might have seen that. So there's part one. And that's Christ's prophecies. And his birth. So this is the part that really gets us for Christmas, because it's the Advent season. We're thinking about these prophecies and how they point to Christ, and then his his magnificent birth. Part two is Christ's sacrifice. And part three, Christ's resurrection. So that's how it's laid out. And there's actually 53 uh, pieces of music, kind of like different stanzas, as maybe you can say, throughout the music. Um, and these can be categorized into four categories as well. And if you were you know, part of the, um, the opera scene in the 1740s, you would recognize these parts. So the first category are arias. Those are for soloists. Two. Recessatives. These are speech-like songs. 
And those are for soloists as well. The third part, turn the page here, are choruses. And obviously, choirs, senior choruses. It's a large group of singers. And four, there are symphonies. And there's only two of them in the Messiah. It actually starts, the whole piece starts with one of those symphonies, and then I think it's uh, piece number 13 that has the other symphony. Um, if you're looking in your, in your lyrics for the recessatives, those are also um, labeled under the um, accompagato, um, which means accompanied. So the orchestra is, is playing um, as an accompaniment to the soloist, and it's more of a speech-like song. It's not the big arias, but it's a speech-like song with the soloists. There are a couple times where they're unaccompanied, and the orchestra is really faint in the back, just maybe doing some more background music, not playing the melody so much. So that, those are the, the categories uh, that the pieces are all put into, and you can see that as they're listed in the, in the, um, in the lyrics themselves, what parts we're in. Yes? Question? Oh, hi, Lenore. Uh, symphonies. Yeah. So just instrumental. There's no singing you know, during those. Again, there's only two of those uh, in the Messiah. Any other questions before we actually start into part one for the next ten minutes? Yes, Angela. Yeah, it's just an aria, and it's sung by soloists. All right, let's look, look into uh, part one. Again, this is a prophecy concerning Christ uh, and his birth. Um, pieces two and four, let's start out with the symphony, and we don't get into the text until pieces two and four. And you can see there that it's broken up into a tenor, uh, and the tenor sings an aria, and then there's a chorus. But they all take their text from Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40 is a, is a great part, of, a great time in redemptive history, uh, where... God had just, through Isaiah, told Hezekiah that because of Judah's unfaithfulness, Hezekiah's sons are going to go into captivity. They're going to be banished from the land. Um, this is what, actually, Isaiah 39, 5-7 says. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming, when all that is in your house, and that which your fathers have stored up till this day, shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away. They shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. That's horrible news. How would you like to hear that your sons, who you were hoping would be you know, part of the royal family of Israel and to rule Judah, are going to be eunuchs in somebody else's palace? Not even your palace. Your enemy's palace. Very bad news for Judah. To be sent into exile means that you have broken the covenant that God, that you had made with God, and things are going very badly for you. That's what is coming to God's people prior to Isaiah 40. But then God, in his great mercy, immediately gives words of comfort, words of hope to God's people. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Despite Israel's unfaithfulness, despite Judah's unfaithfulness, God is calling them, you're my people. I am your God. Despite everything that has gone on, I'm still your God. God is remaining faithful to his covenant. Not only the Mosaic covenant, God is being faithful. 
That was part of the Mosaic Covenant, right? You don't do these things, you're going to be banished from the land. But God is also being faithful to the covenant he gave to Abraham years prior to that. Where God says, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. I'm going to make you more numerous than the sand on the seashore, the stars in the heavens. God is being faithful to that promise. You're going to be my people. But God is also being faithful to David. Jerusalem will also be my city, the city of David. Her warfare has been accomplished, and her iniquity has been pardoned. So great blessings, great promises that are being proclaimed to God's people in spite of a very bad situation uh, in their lives at that moment. But there's hope to come. But not only is there comfort being proclaimed, but the Lord himself is coming. Not only did God just say, you know, things are going to be okay. He's also proclaiming, I'm going to come. The king is going to come. Someone needs to, Someone will prepare the way for the king. And that's where Isaiah 40, verse 3, is such a beautiful text. The voice of him that cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Somebody's coming to prepare a way. And as I look through this, I can only find that Isaiah 40, verse 3, is the only Old Testament text quoted by all four gospel writers. All four gospel writers saw this text and put that in the person of John the Baptist. He is the one that is coming to prepare the way for Jesus Christ. John, the final Old Testament prophet, the last one who is proclaiming the coming Messiah before the Messiah actually comes. And then in Christ, obviously we see Isaiah 40, verse 5 fulfilled. The glory of the Lord is revealed, and all flesh could see it. Prior to you know, Christ coming in human form, what would happen if you saw God's glory? What did God tell Moses would happen if he saw God's glory? Would he live? No. He would die. To see God's glory would mean death. We're humans. We're not worthy to, to see God's glory. But with Christ, he came embodied in a man. So God's glory is going to be revealed. And flesh would see it. You'd see God's glory. You could see the God-man incarnate. Something that hadn't happened prior to this, had it? That's what the Messiah came to do. Uh, the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. It's probably an allusion to Matthew 3.17. Or Matthew 3.17 sees that when God speaks from heaven, when Christ comes out of the waters of baptism, says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The mouth of the Lord spoke these things. And God, God also spoke on the Mount of Transfiguration, a time where Peter, James, and John actually saw some of the glory that Jesus was going to have after his resurrection and when he was glorified. His face shone like the sun. He had white garments. What did they hear? What was the voice, the mouth of the Lord speaking then? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So you can see how these, these passages from Isaiah 40 are being obviously fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that what a, a wonderful text to begin such a, a wonderful overview of the scriptural passages pointed to Jesus Christ than Isaiah 40. Speaking comfort, peace that's going to come to God's people. God's glory is going to be revealed. It's going to be seen by flesh. And the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. And you can hear then how God does speak uh, about Christ when Christ was on earth. Any questions on Isaiah 40, those first few stanzas or pieces of this? Yes, Angela.
You know, this whole thing is yeah, like two hours long. I don't know how, they, how, many, how long the normal one was, but I'm assuming it's about the same. Because they were like operas without all the fancy stuff. And those are pretty long. Right. Yeah, it's a big production. I can look at like the recording I have is on two CDs. You know, so that's a pretty big deal. And these, um, the first, maybe I'll just, I'll just say, the first symphony is three minutes long. Uh, number two and three are six minutes long. Number four is two, uh, three minutes long. So already we're into 20 minutes in just the first four stanzas. So I mean, it's, I was thinking about playing the music for you, but one, we would never get out of out of here in three weeks, um, and it's, it doesn't repeat a lot. I mean, it's absolutely gorgeous, but it just c- keeps repeating the words over and over again very beautifully. So I think it'd be faster just to kind of go through them here. The Hallelujah Chorus? Yeah, that's, I think it's number 44. So that's way down the line. That's obviously part of the, the resurrection. Um, so yeah, these are all scripture passages. And they can kind of stand on their own, in a way, um, because they are kind of taken out of different places in scripture. But put all together, it's a big production that's absolutely gorgeous. If you ever have opportunity, I know San Diego usually does it every year. Uh, let's think about arranging. I just didn't do it, sorry. Yeah, it's, it's beautiful. Or just listen to it online. You probably find it on YouTube. There's a whole production of the Messiah, not just you know, pour unto us a child is born or Hallelujah chorus. There's more of the famous ones, but just listen to the whole thing. Set aside a couple hours and do it. It's gorgeous. All right, piece five A, um, where the bass is singing, comes from Haggai two six to seven. Um, our intern Daniel Ventura will be preaching tonight from the next part of Haggai. He preached on Haggai two. Um, one through eight or whatever it is last month. So it's great to um, hear, if you go back to our um, the sermon online, you can listen to his exposition of the first part of Haggai 2. But this is just verses 6 and 7 of Haggai 2. And just in a couple minutes, I'll just briefly go over this. Uh, the context of this passage in Haggai is in relation to the rebuilding of the temple. So they had come back from captivity, they're rebuilding the temple, and there's some old people around that said, this is not going to be anything like Solomon's temple. They were really disappointed. They saw the glory of Solomon's temple, which by even that point was probably pretty run down. It had been ransacked a few times by the nations, and they probably pretty had some holes in it, so to speak. But they thought that was even more glorious than this new temple that was going to be built. So Haggai comes, and the Lord gives them a message of reassurance and encouragement to remain steadfast in their work. Despite the fact you think it's not going to be all that glorious, stick with it. Because I'm going to make it more glorious than even Solomon's temple. That's the encouragement that God gave to the people through Haggai. God promises that he will appear, he will make things, all things new, um, he will shake the heavens, the earth, the land, and the sea. All this will ultimately be fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth, where God will shake the, the nations. This is also fulfilled partly in Jesus Christ because he inaugurates the new heavens and the new earth. The kingdom of God has come on earth in infant form with Christ and it's going to be consummated on the last day. So even that is pointing to Jesus Christ, the shaking of the nations as we hear um, the, ba- the bass will sing here in, in piece number five. Uh, but more immediately, the end of the stanza says, and the desire of all the nations shall come. Uh, the ESV translates this a little bit differently. I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in 
and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. So what that probably is alluding to is when all those nations came in and grabbed stuff out of the temple, you read it throughout you know, Kings and Chronicles and even the prophets where a nation would come in, just ransack the temple, bring everything back to their own temples in their own land. It seems as if God's going to return all that stuff back. All those things that they got illegally, that they took from the house of the Lord, God's going to bring it back. Some of that glory is going to be returned to, um, to this temple that is being rebuilt. All the silver and the gold belong to the Lord. That's what Haggai says in verse 8. It's all mine anyways. I'm just going to return some of it back to my house in Jerusalem, as God tells to Haggai. And then in verse 9 of Haggai 2, you can read this on your own too, um, God promises that the glory of this temple will be greater than the former glory. If you thought Solomon's temple was nice, just wait. This is going to be even more glorious. And it's not only going to be glorious because of the treasure that's going to come back, but because God's glory is going to be dwell, will dwell there. Just as it had in Solomon's temple, God will come and fill the temple with the glory of the Lord. Uh, and finally, Haggai 2.6 is quoted in Hebrews 12.26 to reassure us that we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. The earth, the land, the other nations, they will be shaken by the Lord at the last day. But what we have will withstand that shaking. It cannot be shaken. God will remove those things that can be shaken, and we will be left with those things that cannot be shaken. What a wonderful you know, verse when you think about the coming of the Messiah. He's going to die. He's going to be crucified. He's going to be broken. I mean, his side's going to be speared, speared. But he's not going to be shaken. God will raise him up on the last day. He will prove to be vindicated over the enemy death, unable uh, to be shaken. Any questions you can bring me to me afterwards, but we're out of time, so let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we just stand back in awe at your promises that you have given throughout your, your scriptures, given through your prophets, proclaiming to a people that were waiting for the Messiah of what this glory was going to look like, what the comfort and the peace that you were going to give to them through your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, they had to wait. Even hundreds of years, they still had to wait for these prophecies to come true. But Lord, we see that they have been fulfilled. They have been completely and fully manifested in your Son, Jesus Christ, who came and conquered death on the cross for us so that we could stand before you righteous and holy. Lord, we thank you for such a wonderful gift. And may that be the reason for this Christmas season, despite all the things going on in our world, may we look to your Son, Jesus Christ, anew and afresh, as we do every Lord's Day throughout the year. Lord, may we be reminded again of the beautiful things that you have done through your Son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you.